All right, now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers uh, this afternoon, uh, co-presenters. Uh, so Kelsey Corlett Rivera is head of the Research Commons and librarian for the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of Maryland. She is also, we're very proud to say, an affiliate associate professor here at MIT, uh, one of our faculty affiliates. Um, as head of Research Commons, she is responsible for the majority of the library's initiatives targeting faculty members, graduate students, and researchers on campus. <coughs> Um, and she is the designer and editor of A Colony in Crisis, um, which we will hear very much more about shortly. Um, she has uh, published widely in the library um, and Caribbean studies literature um, and is a core member of our library faculty. Our second speaker, who we are happy to be welcoming back to Maryland, is Nathan H. Dyes, a PhD candidate in the Department of French and Italian at Vanderbilt University, where he specializes in Haitian literature and history. Um, he is the content curator, translator, and editor of A Colony in Crisis. Um, and he has also um, been quite busy with a number of other translation projects. Uh, Mackenzie Orsell's The Immortals, under contract with uh, and forthcoming from SUNY Press, um, and a translation of Louis-Joseph Janvier's Haiti for the Haitians, um, forthcoming from Liverpool University Press. So he has been a very busy man. Um, so please join me in welcoming our two speakers today. Thanks, everyone. This is very much a homecoming for us. Um, this is not the first time that I've prevented, presented about French pamphlets in this room. Um, the last time goes all the way back to sometime in 2012, uh, when I was pitching a project as part of the first Digital Humanities Incubator um, program, class, series, uh, that uh, Trevor and um, his former colleague Jen Giuliano put together. Um, so it's very nice to see everybody here. Thank you so much for coming and thank you to everybody on the live stream. I'm sure there's at least, what, 100, 150 people watching us right now? Easy, easy. <laughs> so with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so you, you may not tell from here, uh, but our project team is not a traditional scholarly research project team. So collaborators are independent scholars, non-traditional students, library staff members, among other non-tenure track faculty categories. They are Haitian, French, African American, and some have never left the United States. Nathan and I, as a relatively well-funded graduate student, more or less, and a librarian with permanent status, are in the most privileged positions of all our teammates. And not surprisingly, we're also the whitest members of our team. We're at the furthest cultural reserve from Haiti and Haitian Creole, which has become the key to returning the French colonial documents featured on a colony in crisis to their rightful owners. Throughout five plus years spent on this project, we have worked hard to use anti-colonial language, compensate labor fairly, and include appropriate voices. This has become especially important while translating colony in crisis into Haitian Creole, as our project workflows had to be adjusted to best support the inclusion of the Haitian community. While this in no way means a reduction in rigor or scope, it does mean recognizing the material restrictions of the Haitian community in the United States. For example, both graduate student Creole translators are non-traditional age students with families, limiting their ability to contribute in kind in the way that is possible for Nathan and myself. While it's reasonable for Nathan and I to contribute to our profession in this way, and it's built into our processes through our academic careers, 
it is not reasonable for those folks um, to contribute to their community without compensation. It's unacceptable to expect any minority community to perform labor as an in-kind service to an academic discipline, to researchers, to institutions, or even to their own communities. We've learned this concept of convit from our Caribbean peers who have welcomed us into their communities and provided us with a path to collaboration that is equitable for all partners. So I come to this project as a first as a student of language in the French department here um, as an undergrad. Um, that was my first chance to really put my French language skills into practice was in um, Hornbake Library working with um, original pamphlets. And so now we come to you today as I've um, been a Haitian Creole learner and I'm going to present to you the idea of combits. Uh, combits is a noun. It comes from and is rooted in um, the sharecropping traditions of 19th century Haiti um, along with rural agrarian reform um, sponsored by Jean-Pierre Boyer and um, Henri Christophe. And it is also a verb in a classroom, in a Haitian Creole classroom. It's not uncommon for somebody to say, for the professor to say, on nous fait combit, so let's work together. Um, and so this is something that has not only um, been a part of my language learning experience, but something that we've brought to this project and has really informed the way that we interact as digital scholars um, within the community and in our own projects, providing equitable um, relationships between uh, partners. Okay, so I promise we're not gonna read too much today. It's not really our style, so you'll have to put up with a little bit of off the cuff. Um, but uh, this idea of how many hands make light work um, is really uh, where we got started with this. Um, so many hands. Lots of hands. Um, so for our presentation today, we actually decided to um, be excellent digital humanities folks and use timeline.js to set up our presentation. Um, so we're gonna be clicking through the history of a colony in crisis and talking about our lessons learned along the way. Um, we'll point out some personal milestones as well since both of us, for both of us, this project really tracks with our academic careers thus far. Um, so uh, it's not intended to be comprehensive. Um, as you can imagine, over a period of say five to six, seven years, however long it's been now. I like tenure. Yeah, like a whole <laughs> tenure track for me. Um, there's a lot that we could talk about. So if at any point you want to hear more about something, we're happy to discuss that during the Q&A. But we are going to try to pull out the most salient points during each part of this experience. Um, OK, so as we, we started with a colony in crisis right here in Hornbake. Um, and over the, the period of time that we've been working on this project, we've really started, well, we focused on pulling out from the outside into our project. Um, and that's really important when you're trying to keep a project fresh over a period of time, like five to six years, making sure you're not missing any major shifts in disciplines or approaches. Um, okay, so you can go ahead. Nathan's gonna do a great job of clicking over here. 
So um, we're fortunate that some of our colleagues who participated in this phase of the project are in the room today. So Dr. Sarah Benharash was one of the sponsors for the original um, seed grant application, and John Shallow was also working on this project. Um, so this is when we started to uh, explore the pamphlet collection that we have up on the first floor here. And it's when we learned the importance of intentional project management, uh, even on a small scale project like ours, um, where we were constantly continuing to learn and improve. And that first step was when I attended the project development training course as part of, uh, then it was the Digital Humanities Winter Institute, now it's HILT. And so I was in this room with Jen Giuliano and Simon, whose last name I, right there, thank you, Appleford. I put that up there just to help myself out when I forgot. Um, and they really, I mean, we spent 40 hours that week going over the importance of you know, publicity, of making sure you have a press release ready when your first thing goes live, of um, figuring out how you're compensating everybody for their time. Um, so it was really important to have that at the very beginning of this project, before we started digitizing anything, before we really figured out what we were doing. Um, and one of the things that we learned is that it's really important to give all of your partners a voice. Um, so we'll share this URL afterwards. Uh, but we, all of our students, including Nathan, who worked on the project as an undergraduate, um, and John. John has a great uh, blog post on here about cataloging pamphlets. Um, so we have provided this vehicle for folks to talk about their experiences on the project. And it, it, evolved, it kind of got us a lot more buy-in than if we were just paying hourly undergraduate students to you know, put things into a spreadsheet. Okay. Um, so during that process, before we started kicking this project off, um, we were really focused on this Conbi in practice, right? So we were involving French faculty members, library colleagues, um, we had an existing digitization workflow in the libraries that we were able to take advantage of. We had undergraduate French students, we had graduate French students, and everybody was sharing their experience. Um, I also had a baby before this happened, um, so I was not around for some of the accomplishments in between the previous slide and this one. Um, and so this is sort of where I come in as a graduate student. Did you go back? Yeah, I did. Um, never mind. <laughs> this is where I come in as a graduate student. Um, I did my undergrad here as well. Um, and so after my first year of my master's degree, um, the Department of French and Italian provided me with a domestic library grant to perform summer research working towards what would then be, or at least I thought would be my master's thesis. I wound up doing something entirely different for that, but um, I remember my very earnest grant proposal proposing that I would study 200 years of Haitian history in like three months or something like that. That didn't happen, and um, nor does the website pretend to cover 200 years of history. Um, in fact, we barely get to the Haitian Revolution, so I had to then go back and learn what happened before. Um, so this is, the site is very much the before. The ground leading up to the Haitian Revolution, um, the evolution of the project. Um, 
What I did do, though, is um, translated uh, about 12,000 words um, that summer, um, along with a colleague of mine, Abby Broughton, who we brought in um, around like June, end of June, um, to help work together um, to get this website off the ground. Another thing um, that we did was we solicited a board of advisors um, from the field of Haitian studies, from French historical studies. Um, I believe Dr. Benaresh has served as a um, member of the advisory board um, until this day, including. Um, and what they do is they peer review the translations, the historical context, and vet the work that we've done um, and put online so that it's as rigorous and historically accurate and um, precise as it can be, um, both from a translational standpoint but also um, from a historical standpoint so that we're not misrepresenting any of the findings that we've um, revealed here. Um, and this is, this is one of our biggest um, collaborative endeavors because um, this is not paid work. We didn't have enough funds or resources to compensate um, board of advisor members, so they're doing so on an in-kind um, basis. Um, and so I went from running between Kelsey's office and the fifth floor of McKeldin as we were consulting on uh, copy for the website and things like this and um, all the other pages that are not the translations of the website. Um, you can go ahead. Um, and so that was my side of the labor. Um, Kelsey's side of the labor was building the interface that you see here um, online. Um, well, this is the time on JS, but if you go to the website, um, you'll be able to see a very interactive website where you can cross-reference between pages. They're hyperlinked within so that um, the narrative makes sense. Documents flow from one issue to the other. And so um, as a graduate student, um, in doing digital work, most of my interaction was with archives and a Word document. Kelsey was the one that was creating the entire interface um, as part of her tenure dossier and service. Um, being such a tiny operation, at least internally, is what allowed us to so swiftly mount a project um, in about four months' time. There was ground prepared before. We had an entire spreadsheet full of documents from which we could pull um, and reconsult and understand how they fit within a narrative. But what really took place was um, this came to light in about four months um, from start to finish. Um, and in that time, I also <laughs> moved to France, um, where I was a um, lecturer at the Normale Supérieure um, in Lyon, France. Um, while the documents were off in peer review. So there's some good thing about peer review is that you can sort of set it and forget about it a little bit. That's what we did with um, the documents when we sent them off to the peer reviewers. Um, and in the early stages of moving in and getting settled, um, Kelsey and I were corresponding back and forth about where things needed to be on the website um, and how to best respond to the feedback. The feedback ra ranged from anything from um, individual lexical items to a very, um, uh, in-depth historian giving us 132 insertions on a uh, uh, Word document from track changes. So it went from, from varied uh, levels of, of engagement and allowed us to put together a comprehensive list of 12 documents in that first issue. 
And Accounting in Crisis went live. Accounting in Crisis went live in September 2014. Um, it just turned five. <laughs> um, it's almost my entire graduate career. And so um, one of the things that we had to work with our partners that we had established over time to do was to get the word out. Um, this was the biggest endeavor that we had at the beginning was sort of setting up tweets beforehand, setting up which listservs we would share with. Um, the idea of educational partners and, and teaching partners had not filtered into our uh, purview yet. However, we just wanted to launch. We wanted people to see it. We wanted people to see the work that we had been doing. Um, and so this circulated on French studies, listservs, Latin American studies, listservs, and everything in between. But one of our greatest um, sites of engagement was on Twitter. Academic Twitter has sort of morphed over time, but um, thanks to that academic Twitter moment, um, the website was viewed um, just over 5,000 times for the first three months that it was live, um, seeing over 1,300 individual users. Um, we're not sure whether these are users implementing in the classroom or consulting for research or just going for, oh, well, look at what's there. Um, but um, between issue one and issue two, um, the next year we followed with a drop in views by about, by about a thousand. So something happened there between that moment where we launched, there was a lot of excitement, and then we were kind of dormant. We kind of went black for a little bit. Um, part of that's just life. <laughs> But also part of that is sort of figuring out what the next stage is. Um, and we relied a great deal on our partners to help determine that for us. Um, and so while we were collecting data here, we sort of shared, we started sharing with our tenure line um, board of advisors and folks going up for promotion, giving them receipts of things that they could use for documenting their work with our project, syllabi, um, things like that so that we give them back what we can. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So that was a, a pretty big jump in time, as you probably noticed. So pretty much <laughs> nothing happened from September 2014 until November 2015. Um, I got a new job right about then, so I got promoted to be head of the research commons. Um, and managing a unit does take a fair amount of time as it turns out. <clears throat> so Nathan took over a lot of the administrative duties at that point. Uh, so things like keeping in touch with our peer reviewers, making sure that our files were in the right places. Um, I was still doing all the work on the website at this point. So that meant that you know, one evening at like nine when there wasn't too much traffic, I just logged in there and made all the necessary changes. Um, it's much different than having like a dev team downstairs, right? Um, so when issue 2.0 went live, um, this and the next few months, which as you can see are much more active, uh, this is when our focus shifted more outward. So less about our project and more about how other people were working with it. Um, so that's when we were really identifying our audience. You know, we had initially really focused um, at, at here at the University of Maryland. Both Nathan and I were here, Abby was here. Um, uh, and that's when we really started to build that community, especially in the Caribbean studies uh, field and community. So this is when we were doing a ton of writing and presenting on the project. Um, 
for me as a person on the permanent status track, this was really about publish or perish, right? Like I had to get the word out, I had to be writing in certain places, I had to be presenting in certain places. Um, and it gave us a chance to do a little bit more publicity, but it also gave us uh, avenues to share some of our experiences while developing the project. Um, so expose some of our thinking as we put things together. Um, but also when we started adding additional content, um, the, the challenges that we faced through that process. Um, so one of our initial, uh, I think this might be the first thing that we did about Colony in Crisis when Nathan was interviewed back in January 2016. Um, and then we worked with Dr. Ben Harash again, who's here today, um, to uh, she assigned her students in fall 2015 to write up historical background notes about the major happenings, places, people, locations that are featured in a colony in crisis. And so this was assigned as their final project. They had to do it in English and in French. And the students agreed to have their names on there as the authors. Um, so we wanted them to take ownership for it. Um, and this is where the, the project has really asked us to think on the fly and come up with some ways, some anti-racist approaches to respond to a few of the, the challenges inherent in working with colonial materials. Um, so we could, it's, it would be very easy to replicate um, this experience of colonialism and racism in a trans-historical manner. And word choice is where you can really focus on teaching that history without replicating the violence of that history. Okay, um, so our free people of back, free people of color background note is actually the most viewed post on the page on the site. So you can see some of the stats right here. So that top line is 700. Um, so out of the traffic on the site, this page sees the most. Um, the whole site is about 44,000, so 1,000 for one student contributed page is a big number. It's a pretty significant percentage. And it also represents the posts that we spent the most time thinking, worrying, focusing, trying to make the language what it needed to be. Um, and so we went from uh, a student's original rendering of relations between landowners and slaves to our sexual coercion and rape, which was much more representative of actual history. Um, so this note in particular, which we could definitely look at here shortly, um, it's tailored for a rigorous historical audience, right? You know, we actually, and we, we struggled a lot with this because it has the undergraduate student's name on it, but this site and everybody, everything that people read on it ends up coming back to us and to our other co-authors. So we wanted to make sure that we were doing a good job with this and making sure that everybody, um, you know, that we weren't. And feeling comfortable about coming yep. into an editorial role. Um, I don't think this is something that it comes naturally. I think it depends on the project and learning when you need to have a heavier hand with certain things. Um, this is one of the instances where um, we sort of didn't even think twice and, and needed to, especially as language teachers, um, really engage and, and intervene in a productive way um, and share that with the, the community. Yeah, so given the traffic on that particular page, we have to presume that it's not just being used by historians, it's not just showing up in classes, but folks are finding it um, when they're just doing general searches on the internet. So hopefully we're contributing 
a nice nuanced perspective on free people of color that folks are using outside of, of just scholarly work. It's one of our most Googled pages, right? Visitors that don't come from within the site, so. And it's not as if Nathan and I spend a lot of time clicking through our stats or anything. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, so you'll notice that this section is really busy. Um, so you can, you can go for okay. it. Um, so we were fortunate to get our project reviewed in the first issue of SX Archipelagos, and which comes out of the Small Axe Project at Columbia. Um, so that was a pretty huge deal, and it was a very positive review, which I think helped us out a lot and also increased our exposure in the Caribbean studies community. You can keep going. So uh, we published a blog post, Nathan and Abby and I, about this experience of um, working with Dr. ben Harash and incorporating student work into our project. Go ahead. Okay. We had issue 3.0 go live. Which was our first issue that was introduced from somebody within the field. Um, Marlena Doubt was very kind to uh, offer us an introduction and a reflection on the, on, on the ensemble that we presented her with. Um, and this issue also comes out of our thinking of the background notes because it's where we, we take up the work of panning away from um, the wealthy plantocracy and start trying to account a little bit more um, for the lives of the enslaved within the documents and how they are characterized in the colonial record. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we presented at Caribbean Digital 3 in New York, which was another big moment of interacting with Caribbean Studies communi community. Um, while we were, while I was on the train, Nathan was flying, we got an email from Dr. J. Rahom Ibrahim Ibo who has more last names than anyone else I know, and I can never get it straight, so hopefully that was close enough. Um, so from Montclair State, they sent us an email to say, hey, we love your site, we wanna work with you to translate it into Haitian Creole. So that was where we, we got the first um, idea there. Um, so as if you pan forward just a couple more, you'll see uh, we presented there, I published an article, and then um, Nathan started working with the, the Haitian Creole bit. Um, but that represents eight presentations or publications in 18 months. Um, it also, so that, that's an enormous number of hours of work, of travel, of money going to these things, um, especially when, say, you have to, you know, pay for extra childcare to make sure you can make your flight to get to the uh, conference, or you know, sleep on your friend's couch so that you don't have to pay for a hotel, get a roommate, whatever you have to do. Um, so it's a very real struggle for anyone who's having to get their message out as an academic. And we should say also that the original seed grant and the library grant to this point in the timeline are the only funds that we received from outside other than individual travel funding um, from our departments um, here and there. Mm -hmm. But all the time spent writing editorial things or doing interviews, all of those were non-commissioned. Non-commissioned, I like that word. <laughs> I'm looking forward to commissioned at some point in the future. Um, so we did, based on all of this work, we averaged 7,000 views in both 2016 and 2017, which is a big jump from our sort of dip in 2015. Um, we have also, and continue to do so, we prioritize actually doing the work over seeking additional funding. 
So anybody in this room who has participated in a grant application is aware of the enormous amount of work that it takes to actually even submit the grants when you're looking at a very low success rate. Um, so we consciously decided that we weren't going to do that. Now that does mean that a lot of our work has been more intangible, right? Neither of us can put a, a section about grant funds in our CV. Uh, last, um, but people know us now, hopefully, um, and, and we feel like we're part of a field. Um, so right about there, so June 30th, 2017 is when my tenure dossier was due. Um, it was a really busy year. I'm not sure how we really survived all of that. Um, Nathan moved to Tennessee. So, and I also grew another baby. So <laughs> I had a baby September 1st, 2017. Yeah, and at this point, too, um, I had the chance to attend the Haitian Summer Institute at um, FIU, Florida International University, um, through funds via Vanderbilt University. And um, this marks a very big change in the project because um, we had decided, to, rather than prioritizing issuing new translations from French and English, rather to sort of put our heads together and really figure out how to make the translations from French and English go forward to Haitian Creole, um, not only in written form, but also in audio form eventually. Um, and so part of my studying Haitian Creole was not only just attached to my studies as a PhD candidate, but um, also in order to best provide um, the feedback that our students, um, uh, Pierre Vette, uh, Daphne Vette and Pierre Marbranche um, at Mankara State, the feedback that they needed to progress as translators. They're coming from a French department where translation is a professional track. Um, and so this was their opportunity to um, really sort of um, you know, test their skills. Um, and so what it wound up resulting in was an independent study with, um, with Laurence, Dr. Ibrahim Ebo um, at MSU, where they do not have a Haitian Creole program, they do not have a Haitian Creole class, However, our project was able to, with a little bit of um, elbow grease, cobble together a Haitian Creole language learning environment um, where there was an absence. Um, and that too, um, we were eventually able to, um, uh, Zolence was able to apply for some funding through the New Jersey Council on the Humanities um, to sponsor and, uh, and fund subsequent translations and audio recordings um, performed by the um, translators themselves so that Haitian Creole speakers, Haitian Creole learners with multiple literacies can hear the documents rather than having to read them if reading is not something that's within their skill set. Go ahead. And so um, we've sort of had a long um, working relationship with the folks at uh, Essex Archipelagos um, and the Small Axe Project. Um, they've supported us ever since the review and well before the review. Um, and they invited us to provide sort of a state of the field essay um, on the Francophone Digital Humanities where Colony Crisis sort of finds its main niche um, at this point in the project. This is before the release of the Creole translations. Um, and so what we did there was we reflected on some of our pedagogical lessons, the lesson with um, the Free People of Color Post and others, um, while also sort of pointing to all of our partners that we've sort of collaborated with over the years. Um, individual projects that take place as exhibits, one-offs, um, those types of things at the John Carter Brown Library, um, 
for instance, or I'm thinking of um, all the work that DLOC does. Hi, DLOC. Um, <laughs> and all of their teaching guides that they provide on their website sort of as a way of getting not just archival training, but also how to implement archival work into the classroom as a skill set. Um, something that I think um, doesn't always find its way into every classroom, but it could if it had the right application. So we're sort of trying to think through how best to frame that um, for teachers, because teachers always kind of, they, they're always planning on the, on the fly, so they might need something that's a little bit more curated. Um, and that's where we started really doing that work. And so we released the first Haitian Creole translations. Um, to this day, the my bad. To this day, one of the, the hardest things that we've had to fight for is to get viewers in Haiti to find the website. Um, this is a multi-layered uh, problem, um, and it comes with its certain challenges. However. Um, we do have the majority of our site views from the United States um, where there is a large Haitian population. And so one of the things that we're trying to do um, in the long term is produce PDFs of um, all of the translations that we can distribute in manual form, um, as well as other types of um, portable audio um, to provide with the Haitian, the Haitian community in Haiti, um, but also in the United States. And you can go ahead. And so it was really important for us to my entrance into Haitian Creole studies um, to sort of couch this within work that's already being done. Um, the Radio Haiti um, archive at Duke University, sort of a pioneer in how to best um, repatriate audio um, in Haitian Creole to, to Haiti, sort of following their best practices that they've established by distributing um, USB drives. This isn't something that we've done yet, but it's sort of something that we're actively thinking through um, now that we're a, a slightly more senior project, maybe the work might actually be going forward and trying to find a, a larger grant where that work can be done, where that work can be possible on a larger scale. And so Kelsey's going to play for you just a real snippet of some of the Haitian Creole audio. It was produced at Montclair State University um, in their Digital Humanities Center. And I think it's just, it's really great to hear the students um, sort of interacting with the website. Your colony can increase. Mon colonie Saint-Domingue pas gain assez manger pour yo manger dans l'année 1789. C'est pour pour réponse député représentant maître Factorio ak marchand français au débat député Saint-Domingue sous affaire provision pour colonie. Simplement pour répliquer là ou bien discussion comme ça il dit que député qui représente marchand français Ak met factorio bay di ke depite Saint-Domingue te servi ak yon bel langage ki te servi tout tankou yon fason pou bay metropole la pou pa um and so part of my um evolution as, as an editor of this project um is been able to sort of shift from graduate student to editor but also to work with students in an advisory role um uh, Pierre and Daphne come from different places in Haiti, um, and I don't think that, I think this is sometimes lost on people who are outside of the Haitian Creole speaking community, but there are multiple different ways of spelling and expressing things. And so I'm dealing with two speakers and learners of the language, and I'm having to coalesce them into um, one website. Um, and so um, part of my work there was sort of negotiating with them, well, 
okay, we're going to spell it this way, we're going to spell it that way, and then giving them that feedback, giving them a style sheet, um, that type of thing. And so it's been really um, quite a wonderful experience for me to sort of find myself in that role um, where as a translator, um, something that I came to through this project, I can now sort of share that process and those um, lessons with the students. Um, and so after that, we had the um, wonderful opportunity to present here last year at the first annual AdHume um, conference, the first AdHume conference, um, Intentionally Digital, Intentionally Black. Um, and although um, neither of our um, Haitian Creole speakers could make it, nor could um, Dr. Um, Ibrahim Ebo, due to things that we've mentioned before, such as um, family, childcare, coordinating, that type of thing, we were able to welcome them in um, via Skype, or via Zoom, I think it was. Um, and so we had sort of like, we've always had this digital type of interaction um, really facilitated by um, just constant collaboration and constant communication, where they were able to come in on the conference and present with us, although not in person. Um, another thing about sort of um, this project has been wherever we are, wherever you know we've moved or um, who we've brought in to the project, um, there has been this constant communication, this constant need to sort of um, keep things going um, and, and sort of figure out next directions. Um, and so that's something we're still constantly thinking through. And so um, last November, uh, again, going back to the beginning uh, with Jen Giuliano, who sort of talked us through our, our first steps into this document reader economy in crisis. Um, and we did feature her whiteboard handiwork earlier in the timeline. Um, uh, she recommended for me to, as a peer reviewer, for the special issue of the Bulletin of the Association for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies. And I think this was sort of one of the moments where I was able to realize that, oh, maybe I do know what I'm doing on this front. You know, we, I've been through a couple of different official training courses. We've been working on this project for five years. Um, we've really had to grapple with a lot of challenging issues, um, things that are facing universities as a whole. Um, and we've really had to make sure that we're doing a good job and staying um, as equitable as possible in this work. Um, so I was able to review an article on the underlying digital project. It was about Cuban archives, but definitely um, had some similarities to ours. And that is actually leading to a panel at the upcoming AHA conference in New York. Um, so we're going to have a couple of the peer reviewers, a couple of the folks who wrote articles for this special issue, and then also the editors who will be on this panel talking about the experience of writing about digital humanities for a traditional historical journal, and the, the hoops that the editors had to jump through, and what it means to peer review for a digital project when you're looking at criteria from AHA, um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to jump into a conference like AHA. Um, I think it's going to be a really great experience. And also for the internet, if anybody's looking for a roommate, um, <laughs> since we mentioned it can be a little pricey to go to all these things. <laughs> well, and, and to sort of um, dovetail off what uh, Kelsey's saying here, um, the project has given us so much and provided us with such a platform to advance our careers, to advance our studies, we've been welcomed within the Haitian studies um, community, the Caribbean studies community, and also French studies. Um, Hélène Huet 
at um, the University of Florida as well, um, has done a lot of work to sort of um, scare up the, the projects and, and find out where the projects are engaging with digital humanities practices in French. Um, and so when we start talking about establishing a vocabulary for talking about projects, for reviewing projects, um, people to serve as reviewers for grants or things like that, um, this is something that we found ourselves very much in the process of, in the making. Um, and um, it's also provided me with a platform to sort of um, further my own ambitions in terms of translation. Um, uh, translation sort of tending toward more um, sort of an activist stance or what needs to be translated and how does it need to be translated. Um, one of our next steps is to publish um, on a colony crisis an unabridged critical translation of the Code Noir. Um, th those are the black codes that were initially established in uh, 1685 um, governing the um, French island colonies in the Caribbean um, and the Indian Ocean. Um, to this day, there is still not a comprehensive English language um, translation of them, an unabridged translation. Um, some of the document readers from which we based our website on do offer partial translations. However, um, some of those articles that are missing are some of the most crucial ones um, dictating um, abuses, dictating um, enslaved movement, and things like that. So. Um, this is something that we want to provide the community with in a translingual manner um, so that um, we can respond to a pedagogical need, um, we can respond to a community need, and we also hope to translate that into Haitian Creole at some point as well. Um, it's not lost on us that, like, um, it certainly wasn't lost on Pierre and Daphne as they were translating um, what they felt like was history they had never been told. Um, and so I think this is something that it's a project. Translation is something that you come into. It's something that's sort of an act of becoming. And um, you learn so many lessons along the way, as we've learned um, creating this project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you very much for all of your attention today here and online. Um, we do have plenty of time for questions. And we are more than happy to delve into you know, like why we went with WordPress and how we have uh, arranged for longevity for this site, you know, how we're going to keep it going, if we have any, you know, digital preservation plans, all that kind of stuff. How to involve student, student work in um, digital projects, how to put it in place within a semester-long course um, and see an outcome. The project came to be in four months, that's a semester. Um, so, and, and we've been able to facilitate this work as well. So any of those types of questions are also fair game. Yeah, this is just me presenting at AJ, which I already talked about. <laughs> so um, we'll go back to the more meaty stuff. Yeah. Hi, Daryl. Hi there. my undergraduate student. Here he is here now. It's fantastic. I wanted to ask you both, because you both talked about this project in relationship to your career developments as a librarian, as a graduate student, um, about how the work, the work that you had to do to educate your peers, mm -hmm. particularly those peers who are making decisions about your career what it was you were doing, what um, quality could look like, how to assess that quality, and uh, both that education you had to do for them, but then what they educated you about in terms of articulating what is the nature of this research activities that you're doing, what the quality looks like, and how to measure that. 
So I could go first. Um, so I kind of took a cop out here in that my strategy was to, in my dossier, include peer-reviewed articles about the project. Um, so I was able to include our SS Archipelago's article as well as our um, my, my article that I, I wrote for the college and undergraduate libraries talking about how subject librarians can get involved in this work, which is very common in library and information science literature. We call it the how we did it good article. Um, <laughs> so uh, in that case, it was um, within my discipline's expectations, right? So I did this project. I collaborated with the department that I was the official liaison librarian for. Um, I collaborated with our special collections, and um, I mean, one of the, the more interesting parts was this cross-departmental collaboration within the libraries. Um, so in the original project team, we had special collections, we had public services, we had, um, back then it was technical services, now metadata, um, we had IT, we had folks in, in, our, in the basement, that's literal, not figuratively. Um, and that was really, uh, important to share and to talk about the way that we pulled that off. Um, so I think in, in that way, I did not submit the actual project as part of my dossier. Um, so I definitely had colleagues who did that before. Joanne Archer, who wasn't able to make it today, um, she printed out over 150 pages of content from an online exhibit that she did, and this was back when dossiers were paper, and that was how she justified it as being a scholarly endeavor, right? You just the sheer amount of research and time and content that was included in this. Um, so I took one look at that and said, nah, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go the other route, and I, I published a couple of peer-reviewed articles about the project. And so for me, um, it sort of, it, it takes multiple aspects. Um, there's a debate um, as to whether graduate students should publish. Um, there's a debate, um, as to whether digital scholarship um, still counts for, what does it count for for a graduate student? Does it get you into a PhD program? Um, so I, I do believe it, it, it vastly helped my, my chances of getting into the PhD program that I'm currently in. Um, but um, I've also had to figure out how to teach with it. Um, as a language teacher, um, sort of how to use the classroom to hone my skills um, and perform a project not of this scale, but a scaled one where um, students are involved as translators, where you're putting into place translingual um, methodologies. Um, so we mounted a project called Sandomang Lost at um, Vanderbilt University. Um, it's a scalar website. I built the website. This is my, my time to sort of shine as the, as the digital humanist. Um, and what students did is they translated imperial narratives of the Haitian Revolution, sort of through the lens of um, narrative. Sorry, Nathan. I'm just holding this up. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, narrative. Uh, narratives about the Haitian Revolution um, as sort of grievance literature from the French um, side, right? Sorry, just kidding. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't come up always. Um, so I had to figure out how to put it into practice. Um, I had to figure out how to make the writing on it work um, with my graduate studies. Um, so people say. You know, publish on it if it's digital. Publish on it, um, and that was great advice. Um, but it did take me away from other things from time to time. And so how can you find that balance? But at the same time, um, I found my field with this project. Um, 
I found Haitian studies to this project. I found um, French historical scholars um, and French cultural studies scholars who are interested in these types of methodologies to, um, to really perform their inquiry. So it's been a very powerful thing for me because I feel like I've found mentors, I've found advisees, uh, advisors, um, and it's also sort of really helped me um, have a lot of confidence in the endeavor of translation, something that if it weren't for translation, I may not speak French today. So um, sort of taking a, a look back, it's, I get kind of vertigo, but um, it's, been, it's meant quite a lot in terms of professional development for me. Yeah, and I will also second that, that it's opened up different professional communities yeah. for me. Um, so I have very much talked about this and worked with, worked with my librarian colleagues here and other institutions on this project. Um, but I've also become you know, aware of the Haitian studies community, the Caribbean studies community, um, and now I would never have gotten into AHA without this project. There's no question about it. Um, so I think from that perspective, uh, it gave me a lot more variety, and really I was able to tie my work as a, a, a liaison librarian to a French department into a project um, that we could in many ways create together um, and turn it into a product that has benefited others and has also really helped me out. the two questions you asked. Why WordPress and what's the longevity of the project? <laughs> um, so when we, I mean we did it, so we, we built this site in four months, right? Um, so it went from, hey, let's do like an online version of a document reader to live, basically looking like this in four months. And so one really quick way to do that was WordPress. Um, it started out as WordPress.com. Um, I convinced our uh, associate dean for collections that this was a really great project he already knew it was a great project but um he uh sponsored our upgrade to the you know professional level subscription of wordpress we were able to get the liv.umd.edu domain um, and that is maintained up to this point so it was something that was really responsive it didn't require a team of developers because we had no money um, it also is really flexible, so you can pull it up and look at it on your phone. Mm -hmm. You don't need a whole lot of bandwidth to be able to do that. Um, and if we had you know, gotten our team of developers, built some sort of Omeka site, uh, it would have not been accessible in Haiti at all, um, because you just can't deal with that level of, of that heavy content like that on a, a mobile device on, on mobile networks. She could also pass the administrative um, and cite stuff to me if she needed to, um, you know, as somebody who does not have a degree in information technology, um, where that's a, a component. So it was able to, it was very nimble for us and did what we needed to do. Yeah, and actually down the road even further, um, uh, Brittany, who now teaches English in Taiwan, we miss her every day in the libraries, um, she took over a lot of the nitty gritty work on the site. So she was in there manipulating the CSS, um, and that was as a library staff member who got pretty much no benefit to doing um, academic scholarly publications. She also wrote some of the markdown for our article. She did. And, and so, so yeah, she's, she's credited as a co-author on our Essex Archipelago's article because she helped um, write a great deal of the markdown um, needed for the publishing of that article. 
And so the second part of that um, actually ties into what I mentioned before about the library subscribing to this um, professional level subscription. So we were one of the first folks to sign a digital publishing agreement with UMB Libraries. And so we have a, a memorandum of understanding signed by the, the people in charge that says that they will support our site and make sure that it is available on the internet in perpetuity. Um, so that's another reason why we haven't really focused on sunsetting plans um, because we're confident that we could leave this up and also because so many of our different directions and avenues have kind of come out of nowhere over the years, right? Like a cold email from Montclair State, um, you know, adding this Cornwall translation, um, speaking about this at various different groups, right? So we want to make sure that we're open to things. Um, so when we added to the site, right, um, we added a separate menu for the background notes, right? That wasn't there in the beginning. Um, initially, we had one spot for translations, and then we had to figure out how to add additional issues. But again, it was a matter of a couple hours of me working on it when traffic was low. We didn't have to submit any change requests or like change any estimates, right? Um, and so, uh, Brittany is actually the one who did the most fighting with WordPress to make sure that these, uh, the Creole translations looked right. So we can see Creole here and then you can toggle back and forth to the English. Um, and just getting those little flags to show up correctly took many hours of her life and we were very grateful. Not to have the English flag show up when you share it on Twitter for that Creole translation. super important. A huge learning moment. I learned how to clear the cache on Twitter real quick. Yeah. Yeah, so to come back to sort of where you started with this idea of calling, um, I wonder if you could sort of speculate a little bit on if you know, if you knew when you started some of the things that you know now sort of how might you have done this differently to sort of further center the experience of Haitians sort of in this sort of historical literary project? Yeah, so I can, I can take that um, first and feel free to add. Um, so one of the, um, most of us um, in the room are probably familiar with this project, but the Colorado Conventions Project um, has done a great deal for the community of Caribbean digital humanities, African-American, Afro-Diaspora digital humanities. Um, and figuring out how colored conventions, colored conventions um, figuring out how language um, should work online or how language about enslavement works. Um, these are lessons that we had to learn um, coming to issue three is when we really sort of shifted the content focus um, to attend to some of these more decolonial practices. Um, it wasn't something that we initially really I don't want to say we didn't think of, because of course we did. I was the one who was reading the primary literature, but um, it wasn't something we knew how to do. Um, it wasn't something that there was a model for. Um, and their collective, their model, um, is beautiful and it works. Um, Digital Library of the Caribbean has been an amazing partner um, in making sure we're listed in DLOC, um, making sure that we're on the tips of people's tongues um, in Puerto Rico, in the Caribbean, um, things like that. So knowing best how to access our community, um, also within Haitian Digital Humanities, it's been um, extremely hardworking. Um, Marlena Doubt, Gregory Piero, Tabitha McIntosh, um, putting out projects. Um, as my work on the counting, as on counting crisis built, 
Um, I was able to serve as a consultant for um, Chelsea Steber at uh, Catholic University of America's um, digital project, which is a um, indexed digital uh, version of the um, Haitian review of uh, history, geology, and geography from its first issue from in 1925 till today, mm -hmm. sort of providing her with um, some of the lessons that we've learned, talking on the phone about how to negotiate certain types of technologies, leverage them best so that it works for a user, right? Going out of our experience with, um, with Myth and with um, different incubators. So I don't know that we could have um, fully known all of this um, back then, but I know that's how I would have done it coming into it now, is working within the community, reaching out to the community. A lot has changed in five years, um, definitely. I also think it took us a while to find that community. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, we launched in September 2014, and our first real interaction with Caribbean Studies was the presentation at Caribbean Digital in December 2016. Um, so we had, like, a solid year to 18 months of putting it out there, and shockingly enough, nobody came when we mm -hmm. built it, right? Um, so we really needed to be where those folks were, and you know, we thought, oh, it's the it's almost Haitian Revolution, and every single history class in the country will care about this, right? And that was not actually the case. Um, it is the most important event in history. It is. I mean, we knew that, but um, so that process took a little bit longer than I wish it would have. I wish we would have gone into this recognizing this as a, a Haitian, um, Haitian content and focused on that aspect of it from the very beginning um, rather than taking our sweet time to get there. And two, um, I don't know that I mentioned it before, but um, there wasn't even supposed to be an issue to, um, except for when I went to a conference um, in, at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, um, England, at the um, University of Central Lancashire's uh, Institute for Black Atlantic Research, um, we had a major shout out by one of our Board of Advisor members who then performed a uh, performance piece based on one of our colonial documents. Um, the structure of the colonial oration um, she found particularly inspiring to lend to one of her performance poems. So did I know that crunching a spreadsheet would lead to performance poetry? No. Um, but it definitely sort of was one of those early moments where we're like, well, we need to keep going because we keep learning new things. Yeah. Yes. I have a question similar to Trevor's, but more with the attention to repatriation. Yeah. Um, so I heard you talk about repatriation a little towards the end of your presentation, but I'm wondering now about structural changes that you yeah. might have had to make in the projects now since you're paying more attention to that, or it seems like. So um, one of the, I can speak to the technical aspects a little bit more. Um, so I, Nathan mentioned that we are working towards having a PDF version of each uh, translation page. Um, so if we go into the site a little bit, this is our first one. Um, you can see here how we have the historical process, and then we have the French original next to the English, the, the translated excerpt. And so rather than just recreate um, something like this, we are in the process of transcribing the original French so that we can have French 
next to, like actually in text format, next to the English or Creole translation. Um, so that's why we haven't done it yet. It turns out it takes a really long time to actually correct OCR. But if anybody wants to, we have everything loaded into <coughs> Wikisource, and you can actually go oh, in plug. and uh, correct the uh, OCR French text. Look, I mean, none of these pages have been done yet. Um, <laughs> so if anybody has some spare time, it would be great. Uh, to a great option to collaborate with Big us here. margins, we'll take you no time. Yeah, um, so that is the next step that we're doing before we create these PDF versions. And the idea is that those will be much more accessible and available, and it's like you go to a journal site, the first thing you do is download a PDF of the article, right? So that's um, the technical thing that we have in mind. Yeah, and some of this is material too, um, sort of having the resources and the time to acquire those resources to make this work possible. Um, and so our, while our intimate project team has provided us a lot of affordances, um, you know, in terms of uh, mobility and um, nimbleness, uh, the ability to sort of um, really just set at this task um, is, it takes a little bit longer for us. Um, and so, that's something we want to do um, at some point, having those um, MP3s of our um, Haitian Creole translations um, sent to cultural centers in Port-au-Prince, in OCAP, um, the places where um, Pierre and Daphne are from, um, so that they have those materials for people to consult at their, at their liberty. Um, and that's something that's made possible sort of by the long narrative of this project is having the time to meet librarians and archivists in Haiti um, to make that work possible. So yeah, it's, it's a process and we're, we're working on it um, and it's something that we're looking forward to. Um, I know that um, there was, um, we were trying to get another um, grant from the New Jersey Council of Humanities to partner with the um, City of Orange, the Free University of the City of Orange um, which is a community learning environment for um, uh, non-traditional age learners um, where they would be able to work with the website and receive some compensation for, um, for their either translation or other interactions with the material. Do you have the history of how these pamphlets ended up here in the first place? <laughs> um, so, well, John could probably jump in here because he's intimately familiar with the finding age. Uh, but the lore has it that um, at some point in the 50s, one of the special collections librarians went to France and bought out a rare bookstore. It was going out of business and they just bought everything. Um, and so we actually have close to 50,000 items in French in the special collections upstairs. And part of those were these pamphlets. And they were already boxed. Um, some of them had been gone through and numbered. Uh, the uh, really cool ones um, that we went through were in these nice green colonial boxes. Um, and they had been separated out like that. So, I mean, Doug McElrath, that was, that was his version of the story. But, and it, it, I, I don't think they came with an inventory to begin with. Um, and then, so our first issue is primarily drawn from our archives here, but then as we went further on, we did pull from some other institutions like Cornell, um, John Carter Brown Library at Brown, 
and a couple others. Well. Hagley in Delaware. Yeah, a random historical society in Delaware. Um, they have a really nice collection of colonial pamphlets. It's not too random. It's actually the museum that's attached to the Duponts. Um, oh, okay. Uh, homestead of the artillery and of the French background. But um, yes. Well, maybe to continue to, uh, to bridge these two conversations on the repatriation issue or conversation. So these documents were in France. I mean, you have a history to these documents. Um, they're not necessarily Haitian documents. They're French documents, but there are documents now, physical documents. And so when you talk about the conversation about sharing what had become a digitized version of the original, mm -hmm. you also consider what you actually do with the, spell, with the special collections artifact in relationship to Haiti as well, and your, your, your communities in Haiti, your partners in Haiti. Yeah, so um, that's probably on the list of things that are a little bit further down the road. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I'll, I will note is when we embarked on this with the Drift Grant originally, um, it was in tandem with a larger national initiative called the French Pamphlet Panning Project, which was actually NEH funded. Um, and that funded part of our efforts to inventory what we had here. And it turns out that they're really not that rare. Yeah. So a lot of our pamphlets, you know, they're at like 20, 25 different places in the U.S. Um, and we didn't continue with that project in part because the PI left and moved to France. Um, but also because from, a, from the French scholars' perspective and the folks we were looking at, working with at the, the National Library of France, they didn't consider our materials to even be pamphlets because they had to be from a certain set of years, about a certain um, set of topics, satirical, et cetera. Um, and otherwise, they were like, nah, we don't care. Um, so at that time, when we were focused on the physical objects, um, we realized there wasn't a whole lot of um, room to go there, just because they aren't rare. Um, the partners in France were not that interested. Um, and that, that may be different if we circle back to our Haitian partners and, and talk about this. I think too, what, what's come out of the, our documents or University of Maryland's documents um, is the um, uniqueness of the collection as a whole and the collection as sort of a workshop for um, potential projects and further learning using archival documents. Um, so, you know, how that plays out, it could play out in very different ways. There's a lot of um, stuff in the um, French Pamba collection that's visual, lots of visual culture from the French Revolution. Um, we have a copy of Le Tiers Etat. Um, and so, yeah, I think the uniqueness of, we had to toil to make sure that the u unique University of Maryland document was on our website, um, but then it became more cost effective later to use from without rather than um, digitize individual unique pieces. And there's also a big debate about this within um, the archival community yeah. in that the question is, should you digitize something that has already been digitized elsewhere? And we said, no, you shouldn't, um, because we are not digitizing for preservation. We are digitizing for access. So if another version of yeah. the pamphlet existed online, we just linked to that rather than scanning our version. So that also meant that Nathan and the other students did a lot of work to see if something had been digitized. And initially, you know, Gallica is one of the biggest source for these. Um, and it is all 
uh, like copied microfilm. So it's black and white, the quality isn't that great, and me as a librarian was like, oh, heavens, this is terrible, right? We need color, we need it to look like this stuff. Um, but Nathan was like, that takes me 10 minutes to download it, and this grayscale thing from Gallica takes me 30 seconds. So I'll take the grayscale, thank you. While I was translating iPad and computer next to each other, it was crashing my iPad with the quality of some of these images. Um, and so when we think about questions of repatriation, is a uh, terabyte of data feasible for a Haitian institution where um, they're most likely going off of somebody's cell phone um, to attach to their personal account. So these types of things are, are also things that have filtered in as things to consider. Great. So let's thank Nathan and Kelsey one more time.